Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Seek Outside podcast. My name is Dennis. Kevin is here today as well. And then I'd like to introduce everyone to John Gale, the conservation director at Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. John, how's it going today? Good. How are you, Dennis? Thanks for having me on. I'm uh, fired up to join you guys today. Cool. Kevin, how, how are you doing? I'm fine, man. Yeah, living the dream. Uh, so Kevin and I are not in the same place. We're back to recording remotely. So just just for everyone, you know, sorry about the audio quality today. <laughs> um, John, I had a question in, in doing a little bit of reading uh, about kind of where you come from in the world. Uh, yeah. I, re I read somewhere that you were in the Peace Corps. I was. I yeah. was in the Peace Corps in Morocco, a country in northern Africa, from 2001 to 2003. It was a pretty incredible experience and certainly formative and helped, you know, kind of guide the direction I eventually landed in my career. I was doing natural resources work there, biodiversity projects, and, uh, and, and seeing a lot of really cool stuff. And, and then, of course, you know, there's the cultural exchange that goes with all of that, that is pretty special and meaningful and in a lot of ways. And this may come as a surprise to, to some listeners, you know, the people that dream about the Peace Corps and changing the world are the ones that don't make it there. Lots of people land in the country full of, you know, dreams and wild eyed notions about how they're going to change the world. Like those people go home fast. They don't make it. People that make it are the ones that dig in, integrate themselves into the culture, do what they can to make a difference. But the real benefit there is the unknown diplomacy that comes with that volunteer service, you know, that important relationship building that takes place. You know, having people in remote corners of the world understand more about our country, about what we do, but also the kind of people we are. And that's that's where, you know, it really becomes important and something that changes people's lives for the better. And and sometimes you build a bridge across a river or a stream that helps people, you know, improve their lives and their livelihoods. And that's uh, the cherry on top of it all. So you was the Peace Corps something that you had always dreamed of, right? I wouldn't say that I always dreamed of it, but I had always had of an adventurous spirit. You know, ever since I was little, I wanted to try new things, explore everything I could explore. Um, and, you know, I was into hunting and fishing at a young age. It was a part of our family's identity and, and something that we all just did. And so... I was stomping around the, the wild country with my dad and, and family members since I could, you know, actually before I could walk, you know, they're carrying me around in backpacks and slings and all kinds of stuff they could fashion. And I think that just instilled that spirit of, of, of adventure. And, and I met some people that had served in the Peace Corps when I was in college and learned more about what the Peace Corps was all about. And, um, it was it was a lot more than the Tom Hanks movie you've seen on TV. It was uh, really cool and special. And I think talking to people that had actually done it before helped me realize that it was something I definitely wanted to do. 
And I also didn't want to immediately join the workforce after college. I was a little bit of a kite without a string and didn't know what direction I really wanted to go in. So it gave me some time to put the pieces together and have a couple years of reflection before I, you know, settled on a career path. And, and even then, you know, I, you know, took a few different forks in the road later on before I landed DHA. Yeah. And, and so you had worked, um, I guess, maybe after the Peace Corps, then you had started in maybe with Trouts Unlimited. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. I did a short stint with a nonprofit called Save the Children doing neonatal health work in Cochabamba, Bolivia and in India. I was based in Washington, D.C. And I thought I was going to be in the international development world forever. I was working on a food securities position in southern Sudan at the time that girlfriend, who's now my wife, slid me this this job opportunity one day back at our little tiny DC apartment. And it, and it said, Trout Unlimited. I had never heard of Trout Unlimited at the time. I'm like, that sounds like an awesome organization. And I grew up fly fishing and it sounded like a, a dream job. And I couldn't resist applying, so I did. And at some point in time, I had to, you know, that was the first major fork in the road for me was, do I stay doing the international development stuff, which I really enjoyed and found rewarding, or do I, you know, go to work for Trout Unlimited and do something that has always been a passion of mine, something that felt like a dream job? It certainly didn't pay like a dream job. The nonprofit <laughs> world is, is not the place to go if you're looking to get rich. I tell you that much. But some of my best friends came from TU and my old boss and mentor, Steve Moyer, is still there leading the charge on government relations for TU and, and Chris Woods now at the helm there. He was the, the vice president of conservation when I worked for him. And so I still have a lot of good friends there and uh, some of my, my closest compatriots over time were relationships I made when I was very young and working in DC for TU and it was a great time in life and uh, I wouldn't trade it for anything. I, I never look back with regret about that decision. Hmm. And that kind of that shifted you into maybe conservation work in the U.S. And now you're conservation director, backcountry hunters and anglers. We have this really cool thing called the Great American Outdoors Act going on right now. Uh, I know we had a telethon of sorts yesterday, people calling the representative. Um, can you kind of talk talk a little bit about backcountry hunters and anglers and, and maybe the where we stand right now with the Great American Outdoors Act as far as, I believe there's a vote on the 22nd, is that correct? Well, uh, yeah, let me let me get to the, the vote part, which is something we anticipate, but nothing's 100% certain. I'll, I'll back up to the other part of your question about who backcountry hunters and anglers is. For those of your listeners that may not know, uh, BHA was formed in 2004 in the, Southern Cascade foothills of Oregon around the campfire at Mike Beagle's house. Uh, we regard Mike Beagle as our, our founding father of sorts and, and the original chair of Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. And there, there was a, a group of really intrepid people that came together to form BHA around that campfire. 
And it started off with the idea that we had uh, so many really complex challenges when it comes to the backcountry. And there were plenty of groups out there dedicated to individual species, to individual recreational pursuits, you know, whether they're, you're a bow hunter or a rifle hunter or an angler or a mountain biker, or you just love getting outside and, and bird watching. There's groups kind of for every little niche, but there wasn't one group that cared about all things wild. There wasn't one group that cared about hunting and fishing and the backcountry and the spirit of wilderness and the things that I think our members and supporters and, and people like you at Seek Outside and the business community that make their living on the backcountry, there was no one there to defend what we hold so dear. And, and they brought BHA into existence. And I wasn't around the original campfire. It's cheesy, but I always joke that I, I wasn't there, but I smelled the smoke and I came running as soon as I, I could. To be, <laughs> and I, I served on our board of directors for the Colorado chapter in their infancy here. Um, with guys like David Lean, and uh, we just had uh, a, a really spectacular time. And I was working for another organization during those days and was asked to join BHA's National Board of Directors. And I served on, on the Board of Directors for BHA at a national level for, I think, about six years. It was at that time that we were heavily recruiting funding for the organization and, and eventually, you know, had some pretty big grants and were able to hire staff. And I was on the search committee that hired our current CEO, Lantani. And, and we've grown uh, exponentially ever since then. You know, we've been doubling our membership every year for the last five years. And, and we have a staff of about 23 people now. So it's pretty awesome to see the growth. And I came on staff about five and a half years ago after land had been on board for two years. And, and so it's been a really cool organization to be a part of and connected to and watch grow from both when I was a volunteer leader myself to, to now my role as conservation director running our, our policy and government relations across North America because we, we are uh, a, a presence in Canada in two provinces in one territory. We're up in the Yukon these days. And then we have a presence across 48 states and Washington, D.C. here in the lower 48. Uh, we're not in Mexico and beyond yet, but we have a vision of getting there someday, perhaps. And uh, to your other question about some of the things we care about, our biggest priority right now is the Great American Outdoors Act. And I'm glad you mentioned it because there there is an important vote that we expect to happen next Wednesday, a week from today on the 22nd. Um, uh, majority, House Majority Leader Steny Hoyer announced that they will take up consideration of the Great American Outdoors Act. And, uh, and this is a, a little bit of inside baseball, but uh, we're hearing on Friday morning they could actually be uh, considering uh, the Great American Outdoors Act under rule to avoid having any amendments put on it. Um, if, if an amendment is put on this bill, it effectively kills it. It's already passed the Senate last month with overwhelming support. If they amended it in the House, it would then have to go back to the Senate for them to 
uh, vote in favor of it again before it goes to President Trump. And, and that just would not happen. So we have been pushing really hard to get the House to move this bill as it was passed in the Senate with, with no amendments, keep it clean so we can fast track this to the president. So we're, we're very excited about this. Um, for, for those of your listeners that may not know what it does, the title of it is great enough, but what it really does is address the land and water conservation funds funding, which comes from offshore oil and gas development. This is non-taxpayer dollar funding. This is funding that's actually already been authorized by Congress. LWCF is, is a program, uh, has been permanently authorized by Congress last year in, uh, in really important landmark legislation. Now that the program itself is permanently reauthorized, we have a, an authorized amount of $900 million a year that Congress still has to appropriate to the Land and Water Conservation Fund. So it's not dedicated funding. It's not like a trust fund that's there, like Dingle Johnson or Pittman-Robertson dollars that come from the sale of hunting and fishing gear and is used by states for fish and wildlife management and things like that, that, that many hunters and anglers are familiar with. That is a true trust fund. LWCF dollars are not that way right now. And we're trying to change that so that we can leverage those important private investments and allow LWCF to do the good work that it does, whether that's, you know, a, a local ball field and a small town, Colorado, like Ridgeway. I think, Kevin, you're pretty familiar with the greater metropolis area of Ridgeway, or it's done pretty amazing things like preserve large tracts of important wildlife habitat here in Colorado. If you look at Northwest Colorado, the Cross Mountain Ranch, right on the Yampa River, incredible fishery, but also home to what may be Colorado's largest migratory herd of elk. And, and having habitat that stays connected intact is so important that uh, the LWCF is uh, a, new, a really unique program that, that can help do that in addition to, you know, helping a rural community to get a pool or a baseball field or mm -hmm working with the park service to identify private inholdings inside of park service units so that we create contiguous blocks of management with help that help with, you know, management efficiencies. It also does cool stuff like uh, invest in stateside programs. Forest Legacy is a great program, for example, that keeps working for us, working, works with states to uh, focus on important local communities that have needs that are resource oriented. So this is, you know, a, a really cool program that touches so many different facets of conservation. And, and I think that's why it has such broad bipartisan support by everybody. The other uh, important thing that the Great American Outdoors Act does is address the maintenance backlog on uh, our public lands and waters. So right now we have a massive backlog of maintenance needs across all the bureaus, Park Service, Land Management, Forest Service, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Bureau of Indian Education Lands. This bill will dedicate funding to begin addressing that important need. So we're not only preserving a program like LWCF, the Land and Water Conservation Fund that does so many cool things like I just outlined, but we're also 
sort of picking up the mantle of stewardship and doing our part to take care of what we have already too. And because of failed appropriations processes in the past that haven't given our land management agencies the funding they need to address those maintenance concerns, we can begin to do that now and make right on that side of things too. And that's all that's in there. It's just those two things, super clean bill. There's no pork in this. There's no fat in it. There's no bad things. It's only good things. And, and that's why so many people support it and why we feel really confident that it's going to pass the house. President Trump's already indicated that he's in favor of it. He's actually called on Senator Gardner and Senator Dane to send him a bill that he can Ass. Uh, I've been spending a lot of time talking with our senator here in Colorado, Senator Gardner, to uh, help advance this. He's out on the on the road cheerleading this. And of course, our other senator, Senator Bennett, has been with LWCF from the very beginning as well, and has been a really strong champion of the program too. Actually, Senator Bennett's done a lot on specific projects for fishing access and river access in Eagle County on the on the Colorado River. And the Eagle River, and there's a ton of other examples I could go into, but those are just some that are really important to, I think, the, the people listening today, you know, our people, the backcountry mm -hmm. hunters and anglers, people out there in the wild that, that need access, but also appreciate the fact that you have intact habitat for fish and wildlife to make those experiences special. Is is there a good place for people who, you know, are curious, you know, say I, I live in Mesa County in Colorado, like is there, is there a good resource for me to look at maybe the historical use of LWCF funds in my county? Yes. So there is, uh, I don't know the website off the top of my head, but there okay. is a website that, that will show you all the different LWCF projects project investments over time. If you go to the, the LWCF Coalition's website, lwcfcoalition.com, you can see a, a map of LWCF projects that I believe the Wilderness Society put together that's really cool. So you can kind of drill down into different parts of the country, including Colorado, and see what projects are there. But also they have state-based fact sheets that, um, that indicate where those uh, projects at the state level have been at too. I don't know if you guys have a way to to link to this as yeah yeah absolutely. Podcast, yeah, well, but I can send you the links to those two things so that one you can see an exhaustive list of project investments over time, but also that cool map uh, on the LWCF Coalition website, and I believe it's also on the Wilderness Society's website that shows the LWCF federal and stateside funding programs. And the way they've made it interactive is is really cool. So you can just drill down and see what projects are there. Yeah, I would be I would be looking right now if it wasn't for how slow my internet is. Yeah. So I would I would I asked that question because I had been checking out the Wilderness Society's map pre you know a, a, not too long ago, um, and I'm from Northern Wisconsin originally, so I was looking at that stuff. Maybe places I've spent my whole life, and the, yeah. the little town I grew up in. The city park impartial was funded or they used some sort of LWCF funds for the city park that I like played in my entire life. So that was really cool to see. Um, and then I also drilled into maybe some of the more remote places I've been. Uh, the UP of Michigan way up, you know, way up really high where there's like nobody, you know, like, I don't know, not a lot of people. 
Um, and I think they had used almost a million dollars of LWCF funds up there. Um, and then here in Mesa County in Colorado, uh, the list was actually fairly long, right? Through to City Park, through to Pool, um, Grand Junction uh, Parks and things. And yeah, I think that was kind of one of the parts of the LWCF that, that rang a bell for me. When I was listening to your um, the telethon that land did yesterday, yeah, and there was a caller. There, there was a gentleman on there, and I'm gonna forget his name. Um, I think he was from uh, down south somewhere, um, but he was like, "Yeah, my kids play baseball on LWCF ball fields." Right? I was like, "Cool, oh. huh?" I was like, "Oh, well, that's yeah, that's a different side of just maybe river access or or whatnot that." Um, I would imagine all of us have probably touched some sort of LWCF and not known it. I bet you're right, Dennis. LWCFs touch every single county in the entire country. So if someone hasn't had some type of experience on some type of property or recreational experience that LWCF didn't contribute to, I would be surprised. If you like to get outside and do stuff, chances are high. If you're couch potato sitting at home, chances are low. But I don't think that's the people listening to this podcast anyways. That's why we have been promoting the program for so long and, and frankly, educating people about its existence because just like you discovered, places you already know, places in your backyard, places where people take their kids to play t-ball, they might only exist because of LWCF and the Land and Water Conservation Fund's investments over time. If you've ever been fishing in Montana, chances are the fishing access site they used was put there because of LWCF. And, and even in a state like Colorado, you have a massive urban population center in Denver, you know, places like, you know, Cherry Creek Reservoir mm-hmm. or the Two Ponds National Wildlife Refuge, which is a really cool urban wildlife refuge in, in Arvada. And I used to live in West Arvada. And my good friend Seth is the uh, refuge manager there. That's a cool place where if you don't get a chance to get outside and uh, explore the the wilds of Western Colorado and get in the high country, you can have a pretty special experience connecting with wildlife and learning more in a local urban wildlife refuge like that. That's so unique. And LWCF made that possible too. So it's, it's cool to see, how multifaceted this program really is and why it's so important that we ensure the future funding of it. And, and as we look at future projects, we know that the private side of the investments for these highly leveraged real estate transactions to make projects happen in the first place, like rely on greater certainty. And so if we can shore up the certainty for LWCF, create that important certainty, then I think we can attract even more private investments to leverage cool projects going forward that they may have languished or not existed otherwise. Hmm. That's, that's interesting because, because the money is appropriated every year, you might not get people to commit to a project because it could die literally in six months when Congress says, no, we're not going to give you money for that or, or whatnot. Yeah, exactly. And, and there's a lot of, you know, boomer generation is starting to retire or, you know, in some cases, they're, they're passing on and in their, their wills or their inheritance, they, they've got property that's really valuable. And, and the conservation-minded ones want to do something with it. They, 
They don't want to see it develop. They don't want to see it turn into uh, a neighborhood of McMansions or mowed over for the next Walmart parking lot. They want to see it preserved. And, and there's a lot of really cool land trust organizations out there, Nature Conservancy, Trust for Public Land, Land Trust Alliance. There's some great Colorado ones here, like Colorado Open Lands. They're all working together to take advantage of those opportunities and help those families do what they intended to leave that sort of personal legacy behind. And LWCF can help out, but if Congress isn't appropriating the funding there, then those funds get scarce real quick, competition stays high, and it can take a really long time to get where you want to. And, and even the most well-intentioned people get frustrated by the process or, or they just run out of time to act before they have to consider things like taxes and you know whatever um, they need to take care of on their family side of the equation. Like by having LWCF fixed permanently with dedicated funding forever at the full amount, 900 million, that helps us do better job planning and make sure we don't have to worry about the, the fickle nature of, of Congress and the political interventions that happen in the appropriations process. Mm. So um, dedicated funding, 900 million, that's a year. You're going to get, LWCF would get $900 million a year. Is that correct? That's right. That's right. Um, what do they get, or like last five years, ballpark, what have they gotten every year? On average, uh, it's safe to say around $450 million, So about half that uh, mm -hmm. is what we've seen in recent years. And and there's been greater demand than that, certainly. So um, you know, some members of Congress that don't like LWCF and don't support it will tell you that the unappropriated difference is is still there. It's, it's an IOU for later. Um, but just like the movie Dumb and Dumber, when they pull out that briefcase of IOUs, they're, they're not worth any more than the paper they're written on, and, and they're not good. You're not going to be able to cash them in, and Congress is never going to pay it back. And so this will make sure that the people that are diverting funding during the appropriations process aren't allowed to anymore, and that we keep the promise made to LWCF there for the future so that we can do so much more with it than we have been so far. Cool, man. Um, so potentially Friday, today is Wednesday, the 15th. Uh, I will try to get this podcast out as, as quick as possible. Um, what What's the call to action for people right now? What's the best thing they can do if they want to do something? The call to action right now is even if you know or think that your member of Congress, your, your House member, I should say even more specifically, call your representative and just ask them to vote in favor of the Great American Outdoors Act without amendments, keep it clean. And if they haven't co-sponsored the House version of the bill already, that's HR 7092 introduced by Congressman Cunningham of South Carolina and Mike Simpson of Idaho. The more co-sponsors that we get in advance of a vote, the stronger we can make that vote. And if we get to that magical supermajority threshold of 290 votes or excuse me 290 co-sponsors then we can assure that this bill can pass with no amendments 
and get it out the door. Last I checked, we were over 220 co-sponsors, which gives us a, a solid, simple majority. So we, we know that we have the votes to pass the bill, but in order to ensure that we can get the bill passed with no amendments, we really need to get to that 290. Now, we still remain confident that we can pass the bill under normal, normal order um, without meeting that threshold, but the ask is still the same. We want House members to pass the Great American Outdoors Act without any amendments. We're going to keep it clean and keep it moving. And, it, and if people want to uh, send a note or uh, take part in an action alert or make a phone call, they can go to backcountryhunters.org and click in our action center. We've got everything queued up so that you can contact your member of Congress. You can make a phone call. We'll even patch you through and give you a script on what to tell them. We have kind of a toolkit in place there. Uh, so, so that's a great resource. And then, and certainly um, people are welcome to, to explore on their own, find other organizations that are doing the same thing BHA is and, and work through them too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I called yesterday. It took 30 seconds, pop, maybe 30 seconds um, to talk to someone and, and tell them. And, and another thing that was brought up in the kind of telethon yesterday was if you know that your representative is, is already voting, maybe they're already a co-sponsor, uh, you could still give them a call and say thanks. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I, I reached out to uh, Tipton and he was like, I'm, I'm already on it. I'm big, big supporter. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Perfect. so those, that's, the, good. that's good feedback. Um, yeah. It's good to confirm those things and also, you know, do that important thank you. Oftentimes we're, we're asking our members of Congress to do something, but sometimes we don't always follow up with a, a thank you afterwards for doing the right thing. Or if they did the wrong thing, you know, a shame on you phone call or email can be in order from time to time. But I don't think we'll have too many of those with the Great American Outdoors Act. It's supported by so many people. Uh, we feel really good about moving it ahead. Cool. So, so um, let's go to the maintenance backlog real quick. Um, yeah. From what I've understood, you know, and I've heard about this for years, that there's a tremendous um, maintenance backlog um, yeah. on public lands. How much of this is addressed in this? I mean, is it something that it's going to take a little bite out of, or is it going to be a substantial kind of 70% of it might be covered? Well, that's a, that's a great question. Um, and unfortunately, um, this legislation is not going to address the entire maintenance backlog. What it's going to do is give us a, a really healthy start on where the, the maintenance backlog needs to be at. So right now we're looking at, um, gosh, I'm I, sh I should know this off the top of my head, but I am racking my brain a little bit to come up with the exact figure, but there is uh, a significant maintenance backlog that is not completely addressed by this bill, unfortunately. And so what we wanna see is uh, getting a good head start on that backlog so that we can address our, you know, commitment to these things. And, and what this bill does is provide 1.9 billion annually through fiscal year 2025 to address those backlogs on National Park Service, 
Forest Service, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Bureau of Land Management, and Bureau of Indi Indian Education Lands to, to get at that, you know, larger maintenance backlog that exists. I, wa I want to say it's maybe like 19 billion dollars. It's, it's pretty massive. It's significant. But this bill at least dedicates almost two billion a year through fiscal year 2025 to address that need and, and get us going and, and hopefully overcome where we have been at so far. It's, it's kind of like doing maintenance on your car. If you haven't changed the oil since you bought your truck and you have to put a new engine in it, you might have to make installment payments on that new engine, but I guarantee you're going to remember to change the oil going forward. And that's what we hope this bill essentially does. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, if it, if it's 1.9 billion for, for essentially the next four years or so, that's a, that's a fair amount of money to not even be close to what it needs to be. And, and is that, is that roads? Is that buildings? Like what makes it so, or is it just the sheer amount of public land that we have to take care of? Yeah. Uh, I, I just, I just looked it up uh, for the listeners and, and I was mad at myself that I didn't know off the top of my head. The, the big number is 22 billion. Um, that's the maintenance backlog we're looking at. And, you know, one point, nine billion a year through 2025 you know that carves off a significant chunk but it doesn't get us where we need to go and it's all the things you mentioned so if you're looking at the park service a lot of that is facilities management and maintenance but also road construction if you look at the forest service there are a whole bunch of closed roads that haven't ever been officially decommissioned and and so we have issues with culvert replacements and needs like that that are important for fisheries and watersheds where erosion and sedimentation occurs. You have uh, an increasing number of, of needs across BLM lands and, and Fish and Wildlife Service lands for you know, similar things, whether it's a parking lot or a road or a bathroom, could be anything and it's kind of an all of the above thing that's not covered by anything else but a lot of it is roads structures and uh and those important maintenance needs some some trails uh i'd throw that in there because that's an important one to all of us like get outside i mean how many how many trails have you guys been on lately where the signs are all battered and beat up at the trailhead uh, there's logs everywhere. They're not kept clean the, the way they used to be. You know, all of this is maintenance and, and the lack of funding and the lack of frontline people getting out there and being able to do it. So uh, we really support this legislation because we hope that we're going to get on the good side of all that. I agree. I mean, I would like to see the maintenance and all that. I mean, there's a lot of areas that, yeah, as you mentioned, um, trail signs or, you know, bathrooms or whatever are just in relatively poor condition. So, yeah. And I, I feel like it's almost, it, it seems to be almost amplified right now with the amount of people that are going outside. So yeah. like it, it, I feel like it, it is magnified that maybe if there isn't a sign or, or the bathrooms are, are bad. Now you have, it, a substantial increase in, in the amount of people that want to use those facilities. Totally. I think 
more and more Americans are aware of of the maintenance needs we have, but honestly, we're creating new ones with all the increased traffic at trailheads and people getting out on public lands. I think public lands are a great way to restore your spirits and reconnect and, and get beyond some of the difficult things we're dealing, whether it's COVID-19 or some of the social unrest that we're dealing with as a country right now. You know, getting outside and, and recalibrating in the outdoors is, uh, is something that everyone can do no matter what means or access they have, right? It's, a, it's an important like equalizer in our country where the disparity between people in different classes and races, social circumstances seems to be getting bigger and bigger. When you're outside, whether it's a trailhead going into a wilderness area here in Colorado, or you're in, a, in an urban city enjoying a park somewhere, like being outside just helps you put some distance between all that. So I think people are acutely aware one of the, you know, the, the health benefits that come from being outside and, and reconnecting with nature, you know, both mentally and physically, but also, you know, maybe that we haven't done as good a job of taking care of them as we should have. I would agree. And I mean, you hit on a important point there and I don't want to get too far into the COVID stuff. I mean, it's all over the place. We all know what's going on. Um, But one observation I've had is this year that public lands are as busy, are busier than they've ever been. Right. And also camping and everything is as busy or busier than it's ever been. It's been relatively consistent. And I've also seen people talking online about, well, we can't go to Disney World this year, so we're going to take up camping or something, right? Um, And I mean, that's also an important thing to note. Um, And maybe it's good for people to help them reconnect back with the outdoors again, because over the years, and I'm, I'm not trying to rag Disney World or or whatever, right? But the family vacation yeah. has been has moved to a cruise, a Disney World, a theme park, a Six Flags, or whatever, right? And now it seems as if you know people, a lot of people are reconnecting again. Like I went up to a Alpine Lake um, the other day, and there was far more people up there than I've ever seen. You know, and it's twelve thousand five hundred feet or something, right? Um, so in, in, in that realm, um, perhaps that's one of the positive things. I mean, there isn't a whole lot positive from a pandemic, but perhaps getting people outside and reconnecting again and getting them in nature, yeah, maybe a positive. I totally agree. Yeah. I think it is a, a positive and just another reminder not that we needed another one, but I think it's a reminder for people that don't always get outside as much as the three of us might, that these are important places, you know, could be places of refuge, uh, could be ways to find solace, but also ways to reconnect and fellowship with your family and, and, and some loved ones that maybe you've had a little too much distance from lately. Mm-hmm. No, I agree. By the way, you are correct. Ridgeway Town Park and the Uray Hot Springs Park were both on land and water conservation fund grants. Cool. 
I was I wasn't sure, uh, but I knew there was some stuff there. That's cool that the hot springs were. Yeah. Um. Cool, John. As far as getting outside, I know uh, we were talking about it a little bit. You don't have to tell anybody where you're going per se, but you did draw a sheep tag this year. So we're gonna have yeah. to we're gonna have to know like you know at least where do I get my lucky star to wish upon or, or something, you know, to rub together, um, to get that good juju. Yeah. Right. To bring I, it. Uh, Go ahead. I was going to say, I, I'm not, I'm not afraid to tell people where I'm sheep hunting, uh, per se, just because there's only, uh, I think four of us allowed to go in there. So, I'm not going to attract any new competition necessarily. <laughs> and, I, and I have to go to a specific unit. I mean, I drew in uh, sheep unit 66, which is a really cool area west of Leadville in that Mount Massive wilderness complex. And then, and then over into the Hunter frying pan wilderness areas. So you're, you're surrounded by 14ers, including Mount Elbert, Colorado's highest mountain, and, and a bunch of like almost 14ers like mm-hmm. uh, Mount Oklahoma or Deer Mountain, where, where the, you know, they're, they're almost right at that 14,000 foot mark, but, but maybe a couple hundred feet short. It's, it's beautiful country and, and huge. It's massive. Um, so I've been spending a lot of time scouting and getting to know it a little bit better and trying to figure out where the sheep are at. I won't tell you guys where I think the sheep are at, but I will tell you that that's the country I've been stomping around in. I know where they're at. They're in the mountains. <laughs> um, speaking of sheep, we had Terry Myers on here. Oh, right? nice. Uh, and we were talking about calling in interactions with where, where domestic sheep and wild sheep have interacted yeah and sure as shit a couple days ago i was driving on a backcountry road and came across a big herd of domestic sheep that a sheep herder was handling and within that there was a young ram or you um about 50 yards from them so oh my God. yeah so i reported that they went over and looked. They also talked to the sheep herder, not ragging the sheep herder, but he said it was only about a five-minute interaction. Must have been the whole five minutes I was there. Um, but, I mean, that's one of the challenges with sheep. I mean, if we could get those interactions down, maybe there could be eight tags allotted in your unit or something instead of four. Yep. What you just experienced is – Another important state-based priority that BHA has here, our Colorado chapter has been leading a really cool bighorn monitoring program to get people out there in, in the Weminooch in particular down south to see if we can keep track of some of that and, and do the right thing like you did, Kevin, where you witnessed that and you reported it. Unfortunately, you know, even if it's, if it's five minutes or five hours, the exposure is enough to decimate an entire bighorn sheep herd. Domestic sheep carry a bacteria that is transmittable to wild populations of sheep and goats that is, is uh, harmless to domestic 
uh, species of sheep and goats and, and llamas and things like that, but deadly to wild sheep and goats. And wild sheep populations eventually develop a respiratory disease similar to asthma, and, and, it, and it can kill off an entire herd in one fell swoop. And it's why we are advocating so strongly for policies that create separation between wild populations and domestic populations on public land. So if there's a, a domestic grazing allotment, we want to make sure that it's not in bighorn sheep country. And that's proving more difficult than you think to make happen. There's a lot of deference to uh, wool growers and agricultural community in general. And as someone who grew up in a farming and ranching family in Idaho, I totally understand the need to uh, serve the interests of both wildlife, but also keeping working families working and uh, our ranching communities uh, out there doing what they need to take care of their families. I think there's a way to do both if we work better together, but that's not always very easy as we, we've come to find out. And um, in the meantime, bighorn sheep are, are taking their lumps. They're the ones paying the price. And, and it's sad to see that given how much not only hunters have invested their own dollars into restoring sheep populations all around the country, but also state fish and wildlife management agencies. You know, the, the idea that we're investing money into building and growing sheep populations, restoring sheep populations to uh, extirpated lands where they uh, have native range but no longer exist, and then having to turn around and, and even kill them after they come into contact with domestics is like flushing money down the toilet, not to mention the, the tiresome efforts and investments made by you know, groups like BHA and groups like Terry's, the Rocky Mountain Bighorn Sheep Society, which are sort of on the front edge of, 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 of wild sheep advocacy for us here in Colorado. Right. I, I personally, I felt, um, you know, I felt kind of mixed emotions because I felt like I was pretty much um, playing the Grim Reaper for, for the one that was out there, right? With, with the intent to save the herd, you know? It's just kind of a, a mixed emotion to it, right? You're like, well, geez, that, that sheep's going to die to save the herd, you know? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> and and it may have come down to that. It'd be interesting to find find out the ending to that story, but I have a feeling that maybe we don't want to know what it is. Right. So what other, what other issues are top of mind um, for you, for Coloradoans, for BHA? That's a great question. Um, I'll give you a couple. We have so many and the Colorado chapter is just phenomenal. Uh, as you guys know, you guys have uh, been awesome supporters. Seek Outside is one of our most important corporate partners in general, but as a, as a Colorado company, I know you guys give a lot of love to our chapter here. One of the things that we've been working on uh, more recently is elevating the importance of migratory corridors in Colorado. Uh, we worked with a, a bunch of our other partners to uh, ask Governor Polis in his early days in office to 
put out an executive order to elevate consideration for for migration of big game in Colorado and to work with other Colorado agencies like Department of Agriculture and Colorado Department of Transportation. So we're all working together more to one, identify corridors, identify needs and find ways to prioritize projects. And in that way we can then begin to um, work together to identify resources to invest in those projects and get some things done. And I think that's gonna have an important impact with our federal partners who manage uh, BLM lands, Bureau of Land Management lands and Forest Service lands. We've been working in the upper Rio Grande uh, on that forest plan there to make sure that the Forest Service is elevating considerations for migratory corridors in Colorado and looking at keeping intact habitats. So as, as big game species, especially, but also any other critters using those habitats have the ability to move up seasonally. And, and I think, you know, in terms of a, of a climate change strategy, it's good for that too. So by, by focusing on creating healthy habitats and intact migratory corridors, we're only doing the right thing for big game animals that, you know, in a, in a state like Colorado that have to migrate out of winter range into summer range as, uh, as it, as it gets, uh, colder and hotter seasonally, we need to preserve their ability to escape the heat and get up into the high country. And then when the snow starts getting deep and covering grass and feed, it can move into those important wintering areas. And that helps with climate change too, as species have to, uh, adapt and move up in elevation and, and latitude, then we need to uh, create resiliency for those systems for that reason as well. So I think there's, there's a lot of great reasons to focus on it. And we made some really strong headway under a governor and a department of natural resources and Colorado Parks and Wildlife uh, staff that are committed to driving this forward together. And so it's been a really cool process so far that we've been proud to be a part of, but uh, something that is, um, you know, still, still happening and going on, you know, we haven't solved all the problems yet. We haven't done all we want to do yet, but we've made some strong headway there and it's, and it's a really cool project. So I got one little thing to add, you know, yeah. I beat Ty Stubblefield in that event. <laughs> <laughs> you took him out. Yeah. Boom. Yeah. I Stubblefield. <laughs> I was robbed. Um, I feel like I feel like there'll just have to be a rematch for anybody that doesn't know. Kevin Kevin may or may not have uh, been beaten legally or not legally, but uh, by the rule book uh, by Ty Stubblefield in a in a TP setup contest. Um, I, feel, I feel like we'll just have to hash that out next year when we can do it in person. Hopefully. I I will say that uh, there was there was two very different approaches in that TP setup process. There was Ty's frenetic uh, racing around approach. And then there was Kevin's cool and calculated approach. Like, like I, I'm pretty sure his eyes were closed while he was doing it. It was so <laughs> smooth. Uh, so I think that there's a handicap there that definitely works in Kevin's favor. And I think given a rematch, knowing that, that Ty's uh, legs of fury were moving so quickly, maybe, Kevin 
would be able to just to once and for all put this one to bed. But I think Ty's been in training, so uh, <laughs> don't don't count your chickens before they're hatched, Kevin. <laughs> um, something else that uh, the Colorado chapters uh, really been leading on here that is super cool that that I'm proud of is uh, a process to secure greater access to state trust lands here in in the state of Colorado. So the, the chapter has been working for several years now to open 500 acres, 500,000 acres, I should say, of state trust lands that were previously closed to public use. Um, it was a phased reopening. We were successful in working with the governor's office, uh, state land board and uh, Colorado Parks and Wildlife and Colorado Wildlife Commission. And there were so many people involved and this was such a heavy lift and it's a really cool, tangible deliverable that I think uh, hunters in particular will really appreciate. The, the phase development started with 100,000 acres being opened immediately in 2019 and, and the rest are, are now beginning to be made available too. So uh, that's a, a proud accomplishment that you know, I had very little to do with, but I'll tip my hat to the Colorado chapter and their hard work. Um, we had an intern from Colorado State University, Liz Rose, uh, who, who was really championing this as her a capstone project uh, for graduate school. And so it was cool to have her leading this for us under the, the guidance and tutelage of the chapter. Our, our field operations director, Tim Brass, was in the mix and our Colorado outreach staffer brian webster um who's the who's the manager of our of our western program but also the coordinator with our colorado chapter those guys worked as just a really solid team to push this over the finish line and i think it's a, a cool success story that i'd be remiss if i didn't mention um and, and there is something interesting there and, and you can correct me i might not know the whole story but there's maybe certain chunks of these state trust lands um, that you can now access, but only if you have a valid hunting or fishing license. Is that correct? Kind of. Uh, so there, if, if these are state trust lands and, and they're being leased or utilized as state wildlife areas, then yes. Um, state wildlife areas now, in order to be able to access them, you have to have a valid hunting and fishing license. Okay. Okay, so that that's different. That that's if the state is kind of uh, renting those state, or if the CPW is renting those lands from the state for wildlife issues. Yes. Um, so, and I, I have to go and do some research to even see if there there are places where state wildlife areas are leasing from uh, the the state land board. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know for sure if, if there's any instances of that or not. I do know that Colorado Parks and Wildlife does lease lands from uh, the state land board for wildlife and hunting and fishing access purposes, but I don't know if they're connected to those state wildlife areas that uh, now require people to have a valid hunting or fishing license. Um, but I think uh, in addition to the state wildlife areas, that also extends to CPW leased state trust land. So whether or not there's 
uh, crossover with the state wildlife areas or not. Uh, I believe it does extend also to any of the those leased lands. Hmm. Okay. But if it's not leased by CPW, then there is no requirement for having that hunting and fishing license. But it's uh, uncertain whether or not there would even be public access in the first place. Colorado is one of the most sort of backwards out of all the Western states where before this 500,000 acres was shifted into public access, we had, I think it was about only 20% of all the state trust lands in Colorado were publicly accessible and, and the 80% remaining were, were only accessible by permission to, from leaseholders or under, you know, special use circumstances through the state land board. And, and each state has different access regulations on their state trust lands. Um, like some of them you can access for hunting and fishing all you want, but you can't camp on them. It's very confusing from state to state. And I think the reason that is, is because um, state trust lands are there to produce revenue for public education. And so different states have put in different regulations and requirements for access of those lands, depending on how they're being utilized to generate that kind of revenue. Cool. I think I just put everybody to sleep. No, 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 no. <laughs> I'm hoping that's not confusing to everyone because that is something new, right? The, the only being able to access certain parts of these kind of um, um, state wildlife areas with a hunting and fishing license. Like, yes. so the easiest way to say it. Yeah. Yep. Awesome. Um, Cool, John. I don't, we don't need to take up any more of your time. Um, we'll put links. I'll, I see you've already, you've already sent me some stuff. Um, we'll grab a bunch of links and, and put them out there for people and we'll, we'll share it um, as well. And I'll, I'll try to get this out as quickly as possible so we can maybe rally some more phone calls um, to everybody's house uh, representative and, and maybe get, maybe get 290, get a, a super majority. So, yeah, let's make it happen. Hey, and I'd, I'd be remiss if I also didn't, I should have mentioned this earlier when we were talking about the Great American Outdoors Act, but uh, BHA and our corporate partners really rallied and delivered a letter signed by 21 businesses from around the country that rely on wild places to tell Congress that we need to get this over the finish line. Seek Outside was one of the first to sign that letter. They provided an awesome quote in the press release that we sent out yesterday. So I'll make sure you guys get a copy of that press release and uh, a final version of the letter. If you feel like sharing that, you're, you're more than welcome to. But I uh, wanted to take my hat off and, and say thanks to Seek Outside for your leadership on behalf of the business community. We couldn't do what we do without people like you putting your money where your mouth is, but also standing up as a corporate citizen to move in advance on the advocacy side of the equation so that we have wild places to, to pitch our tents and sleep out under the stars. Sweet. I got one last request. Who do you yeah. think our next podcast guest should be? 
Ooh, good one. Um, let's see. Who should your next? What's what's going on? That would be super interesting. I think that. Uh, gosh, I feel like I'm on the spot. Usually, pretty quick with an answer too. <laughs> Maybe, uh, you know, it might be cool to have uh, a biologist come on from Parks and Wildlife to talk about the big game migratory corridor stuff. That could be a cool guest to have and get into the weeds on some of that stuff that we, we brought up earlier. Um, there's a ton of interesting people out there that uh, would be, I think, awesome to have on a podcast like yours, too. But none of them come to mind right now. <laughs> yeah, you can you can shoot us some names. I think that would be great. I'm gonna have to, right? Yeah. Like, like ah, I'm on the spot. I'm yeah. On the state. Um. Yeah. No. I mean, you obviously know some of those folks, so you could uh, you could you could send us some names, and we could reach out. I think that would be great, just to learn kind of uh, you know, what they're doing as far as tracking, you know, because it's a, it's a new thing, right? Um, yeah. You know, I mean, a lot of the work they're doing is not new, but it's been given, um, I guess, more attention mm. and more direction under the executive order. And there are some uh, new reporting and benchmarks that uh, stakeholder groups are a part of uh, BHA is involved. Uh, Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnerships doing a lot, actually, uh, Someone cool you might consider is is Madeline West uh, or Ed Arnett, who both work for TRCP. Madeline is doing a lot of their uh, Western policy work and is really focused on this migration work. Ed Arnett's their senior scientist, uh, so he brings a, a wealth of information on the science and biology. Yeah, we, we've had Ed on before. Oh, cool. You know who I think would be cool? David A. Leon. Oh, yeah. He would be awesome. You should totally talk to him. Um, you know who else would be great now that I think about it is uh, Lisa Onenberg, who's the new Outdoor Industry Association Executive Director. Uh, people here in Colorado might remember her from when she was uh, the Executive Director of Great Outdoors Colorado or GoCo. Mm. Um, she spent uh, some time in D.C. doing a stint under the previous administration and has returned home to work for the Outdoor Industry Association and, and given uh, Seek Outside's uh, stake in that community and the fact that they're based in Boulder and, and they're kind of reinventing themselves in a lot of ways and, and she's establishing what her vision for leadership going forward is going to be like. I think she'd be a really dynamic guest and she's an old friend and someone that I think you'd have a lot of fun with. Cool. Let's do that too. Let's do, let's just do them all. Kevin, what do you think? I wasn't so hard. Like I, I, I turned out a couple names there for you at the end. Yeah. Just go for it. In. Go for it. Cool. Uh, well, John, I think maybe we should touch base again after your sheep hunt and see, uh, see how everything went. Yeah, I guarantee I'll have stories whether I successfully harvest or not. Awesome. Cool, man. Well, I really appreciate it. Uh, really, appreciate, really appreciate those words about Seek Outside. And we will, again, put all kinds of links out there for people to find all the things we talked about today. So thank you very much. 
Hey, thank you guys. It was good uh, catching up, Dennis and Kevin. Uh, We love Seek Outside. Give my best to the rest of the Seek Outside family and keep doing what you guys do. It's great. I love it. Love your products. And uh, they're what get me in the backcountry and keep me going longer and deeper. Thanks, man. See you guys. Thank you. Hey, everyone. Real quick before you go, I just wanted to say thanks for listening. And if you've been enjoying our conversations, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Also, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, please email podcasts at seekoutside.com. Thanks, and have a great day.